Thanks so much, Trip. No, you can take the mic. <laughs> um, now, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, hi, good to see you all. Um, one way to Christmas, how about that? And I think there is a giveaway that it is coming close. Um, up the back, there's outlines and there's also transcripts. If, if you find that helpful, they've kind of just arrived. So feel free to get up and go grab them. Doesn't matter if you're up and walking around. Uh, let me um, let me begin by praying uh, with us. Father, thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you for the treasures that it holds. Uh, and Father, we especially thank you for the treasure of today's passage. Uh, Father, help us just to dip our toe in it, just to, to bask in it for a morning um, and then remember it for a lifetime. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what's so great about being a Christian? Do you ever find yourself asking that? I mean, here you are, you're, it's a Sunday, and you're sitting there in church. A lot of your family aren't, a lot of your friends aren't. Sunday is another day, they get to sleep in. Um, they get to relax, they get to go out. Maybe they're away for the whole weekend. But you're here, you're in church, you're, you're watching online. And you, and you give your money, and you take another night out during the week, to perhaps be part of a Bible study, maybe you take other time out on top of that in order to serve people in some sort of way or serve the church. And then, of course, you've got the reality of, of living your life with somebody else ruling it, right? You've got a master, you've got, you, you're called to live how God calls you to live, not just however you want to. Um, and then there's the hard times that you face, right? From people who think that you're weird, or foolish, or naive, or ignorant, or arrogant, or even hateful. Why would you, why are you here? Why, 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 would, why, would you, why would you choose to live this? What's so great about being a Christian? What is it that we believe, what is it that we know and experience that gives us the assurance to say with all our heart, it's all worth it. It is well and truly worth it. But even more than that, what, what is so good that would actually give us the boldness in the world that we live in to say, hey, you know what, you guys, come over and meet Jesus. You're missing out. You need to know this God. Now, if you've been asking yourself these kinds of questions... If you found yourself flagging in your fight against sin, perhaps, or if you're experiencing a bit of faith fatigue, or even, you know what, even if you just love hearing these verses and hearing them again and again and again, listen up, because today we finish Paul's unpacking of the glorious gospel that he does in Romans chapters 1 to 8, and we come to their magnificent conclusion the conclusion that refocuses our minds and our hearts on the great power of the gospel and the joyful reality of being saved through it. Now, of course, we started doing this last week, all right? We've been on a bit of a journey through the whole chapter, um, you know, where Paul boldly said what we know, right? He drew our hearts and our minds to um, forward to our future hope, 
even as we experience the hardships now, he, he, he taps into that sense of longing for the great things that God's going to bring about. So, of course, Romans 8.28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. You know, that wonderful comfort of knowing the God who is sovereign over all the events of life, even the difficult ones and even the patient and the um, painful ones, they're in his hands. Ruling over all of that is the God who is good and who through all of that is working for our good. What a wonderful reassurance. But I'm particularly keen that we actually revisit this week, verses 29 and 30 that we touched on last week. Those, those five golden links in a chain that takes our salvation from its origins in the very mind of God to its realisation in glory. Um, see, last week we did touch on it, but we reflected briefly on it. The wonderful, I guess, inevitability of it all, that one leads to the next. But I thought it would be helpful to, do, to think a little bit more about the theology that's in it. Um, the realities that these verses describe and understand what God has been doing over all ages for you. Because as we do so, we're going to see just how much salvation is 100% God's doing. And, he, and we are all the more secure because it is. Now, can I just say, if you're newish to church or to Christianity, you may not be aware that there is this debate that's been going on for centuries around a concept called predestination. Uh, it's, the, it's a Christian P word, it's, you know. Um, some resist the concept because they believe that what it does is it robs us of free will and undermines the authenticity of our relationship by God, by having God doing it all, right? But Romans holds this idea up, front and centre, as being this core and precious reality that actually you want to hold on to. Our wills are free in the sense that we make genuine choices in life that we're responsible for, but our wills are not and never will be independent. We are creatures and we're creatures of habit and desire and those things are always going to impact our wills. Now, God made us in His image to live freely for Him, but the truth is that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone's will and the choices, the genuine choices that come from that, um, have been enslaved by our own sinful desires, which is why we need God to do all of the saving and to transform us from sinners facing death to the righteous destined for glory that it is entirely the work of God, that is absolutely, can I say, foundational to assurance in your faith. Now, Paul's going to go into um, a lot of depth on this matter um, and some of the questions that might get raised by it in chapters 9 to 11, and we're going to look at that later next year. Um, but in chapter 8, what he just wants to do is explore how wonderful it is. So look again at that golden chain, verses 29 to 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, those he justified, he also glorified. So let's work through that chain. The first link in the chain is God's foreknowledge. 
of those that he was going to save. Now, some people think that this foreknowledge means, describes the fact that God, because he knows everything, knew ahead of time who would end up choosing him and who would end up responding to him. But the concept of knowing someone in the Old Testament and the New Testament is a whole lot larger than just being aware of things in advance. The Old Testament word in particular has a lot to do with watching over, caring for, intimate knowledge of. And this meaning carries over into the way it's used in similar contexts in the New Testament. It's a far more relational concept. So to speak of a specific group of people, those God foreknew, is probably best to describe them as understood as those God foreloved, that he loved in advance. Predestination is sourced out of God's forelove of those that he would choose. We love because he first loved us. And so we come to the second link in the chain, that those God he foreknew or foreloved, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So predestined is to decide upon beforehand. Those that God knew, loved in advance, he decided also in advance to conform them, because he loved them so much, to the likeness of his own son. And that makes beautiful sense, doesn't it? I mean, what greater act of love could God do? What greater gift could God decide to give to those that he loves than to shape them to be like Jesus? To exalt them to the status of his own family, that they might enter into the perfect relationship that the Father and the Son have enjoyed for all of eternity. We get to be a part of that. I mean, that's what love does, right? Let's look at the third link in the chain. Those he predestined, he also called. This is the working in history of his predestination. So those whom he foreloved, he chose to make like Christ and having chosen to do this, how does God make it happen? He calls them to him through the effective preaching of the gospel. Now by effective, I mean when by His Spirit He awakens the spiritually dead to the good news of Jesus, which they then respond to with repentance and faith. And they can respond because He's given life to their spiritually dead natures. That is, God's call, I want to say, is not the general call that God gives to everyone to turn to Jesus. It's His specific call to the heart of the individual to embrace the gospel, a call that they will hear and that they will respond to because as Jesus said, my sheep will hear my voice. And when they do, those he called, he also justified. This is what we spend a lot of time in in Romans, isn't it? When they respond to the call of the gospel, by faith they're united with Christ and receive the benefits of all the things that he has done. In him their sin is taken away and in him they're declared to be righteous in God's sight. They're justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So once declared right in his sight, the next inevitable step is glory. Where else is it going to go? That was the whole point 
from the very beginning, that we might share in his glory, that he might give to those he loves his glory. And this glorifying has already begun. We're being made more like his glorious son, Jesus, now, and in heaven, that glory gets fully realised. And the inevitability of that glory is so certain that, as we pointed out last week, Paul even puts it in the past tense, as if it's already been completed. And the chain is unbreakable. God does what God decides to do. And that should actually bring you great comfort. For all those that God has done, even one of these things, he will do all of them. If you've responded to the gospel, you're in the chain. You're one of those that God foreknew and predestined and called. You've been justified and glory is on the horizon. And that's the assurance that the Christian has. And so Paul pretty much says once he's laid that out, he says, well, what's there left to say? What's there left to say? And the tone of today's passage then shifts from um, really interacting with our sense of future longing to actually bringing it home into the now and to reinforcing the present confidence that you can have as a Christian. And he does it by asking a series of rhetorical questions. But in reality, they're more like triumphant challenges, right? Because they're questions that he's practically daring anyone to argue anything different. Who can challenge the power of the gospel to save? See, the first set of questions assure us of God's enduring favour. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's like Paul is setting up this uh, internal conversation between us and the sufferings of the present time that he's been addressing, that he's speaking about back in verse 18. What do we say to these things when we face them? You know how it works sometimes, right? How when you're pondering, you've pondered, I take it, you ponder your circumstances and you have conversations within yourself. I'll give you an example. A decade ago, I went skydiving for the first time, which I think I mentioned before, and the conversation, believe me, there were plenty of them going on inside of my head um, when we were driving the car on the way down to Wollongong to do it, and the conversation in my head went something like that, isn't this dreadfully irresponsible, David? What if you die? You're a father, you've got kids, you're a pastor at church and all that kind of stuff. And then the other thing I said to myself, yes, but is it really going to happen? I mean, you're going to be tethered to an instructor who does this 20 times a day, five days a week. He knows what he is doing and has a vested interest in not hitting the ground at 200 kilometres an hour. And God is sovereign, so if your time's up, your time's up. That, that, that was a rider um, that, that went in there. But um, the thing is, you get, you get the idea, you've had these sorts of conversations where you almost have debates and pose questions to yourself and answer them. That, that's what... Paul is, in a sense, doing here. Paul is giving us the internal conversations that we need to have as we encounter these circumstances in life. And the first one he says is, if God is for us, who can be against it? And I mean, really, think about it. 
If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, your family might be against you, when your peers might be against you, or your circumstances might appear to be against you, Satan certainly stands against you. The whole world, in fact, could be lining up one after the other, wanting to take you down. But God is for you. God, right? The God is for you. The one who planned from before creation itself to make you like Jesus and bring you to glory, that God is for you. And now consider those other things and ask, well, which one of them would you bet on in a cage match with the living God, right? Um, none of them. Is, is any, any of them powerful enough to prevent God, who is for you, from achieving His purposes in you? No. If God is for you, there is no person, there's no force or power in this universe, you need fear. And not only need you not fear, whatever those things might be, it's worth remembering for yourself what God is for us actually means as well. It doesn't just mean that He can out-wrestle the things that are against you. God is much more than your divine shield. He's actively for you in a big way. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? There's a conversation to have in your head. And let the logic of that question hit home. Notice the double emphasis in verse 32, did not spare, but gave him up for us to save us. You see what that saying is, that God is willing to put it all on the table. He held nothing back for us. And so then, ask yourself, what is the likelihood then that God would not follow through on what the purpose of that sacrifice was? To make us heirs of all things with His risen Son. Why would he go through all of that if he's not going to follow through, right? What are the chances that the God who's willing to do this would suddenly forget who you are or what you mean to him? This is the God who says to us, I will never leave you or forsake you, never. And just one thing I think is worth remembering this is, is when you're praying. See, sometimes we pray assuming that God is going to say no. But that's the default position because, you know, he's God, he's big, he's got things to do, right? What am I? I'm a worm. Well, we pray sometimes assuming that God is going to say no or is cold to us or needs to have his arm twisted somehow. You know, some people think that they need to pray to Mary or say it's as if they're going to persuade him because he'll take them more seriously or, or we'll try and make bargains when we pray. Say, look, God, if you do this, I'll do all of this. You know, if you'd only be kind to me. Why do we do that? Have we we completely forgotten the God who is behind the gospel? Then instead we find ourselves praying to a God that we think is remote and disinterested and unyielding. Do you want to read the Bible again? 
How, how could we ever think that God has anything other than kindness stored up in his heart for us? No, Paul joyfully challenges us. Come on. God was willing to give up his only son to die on a cross for us. Do you think he's not absolutely and thoroughly in our camp and for us? God is enduringly and consistently gracious and generous towards his people. So when you pray, pray boldly and expectantly and joyfully, knowing, and knowing this because of the cross, that if God's answer to your prayer seems to be a no, it really is because he's got a better yes. And we can trust that. So not, not just that you know, he's working his purpose somehow in his mystery, but actually knowing that he's, he's still being unwaveringly gracious towards us in the no, because it's a better yes. That's the God you know in the Bible. That's the God who sends his son to die for you. And so when you pray, let that impact the way you pray. We can be assured of God's enduring favour. But not all of the challenges come from the outside, do they? Sometimes our greatest burdens are the ones that come from our own consciences. Those doubts and fears that arise as we're struck by our failings and our follies and our just unworthiness, right? When we wrong God, when we wrong others and when we loathe ourselves. This is where I think Paul, I think there's a, Paul is very much being a pastor through these, way better than me, but, but Paul the pastor has got a message of assurance for those doubting whether God could really save a wretch like me. And if you've ever had that feeling in your heart, could he really do this? Who might fear that one day someone somewhere is actually going to point out to God just how bad you really are so that he changes his mind and go, actually, why no, what was I thinking? Being gracious to them. The second set of questions that we can put to ourselves when faced with such doubts assures us of God's enduring verdict. Look at the first of these. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Now, if we just consider the first part of the question, you might come up with many answers. Who will bring a charge against us? Heaps of people. <laughs> Heaps of people will try. I mean, there's our own guilty consciences for starters. We, we bring charges against ourselves again and again and again. Most of us are our own worst critics, right? And then there's the world who looks for any chance to say, hey, there's a hypocrite right there. Whenever you do anything wrong. Um, or harmful haters and accuse us of being that. Just because we don't affirm everything that the world affirms and still maintain that there is a right and a wrong and a God that gets to make the choice about what those things are. Hater. And of course, Satan, whose name means accuser and his fingers point, permanently pointed. But Paul says, hang on a minute, think again. Who is going to bring a charge against those that God himself has chosen? I mean, he's the one who rules us. He's the one who sees all knows everything that's going on. He's the one who is perfectly just and wise in all of his judgments and he is the only one who actually has any right to point the finger because all of sin is actually a crime against him 
So he's the only one who's got a right to point a finger at us. And God is the one who has chosen you and declared you to be righteous in his sight. So no charge will or can be given if God ain't going to bring it. In God's sight, we are completely clean because in Christ, he has made us that. And verse 34 reinforces this reality. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. See, how on earth could a Christian ever end up condemned? The one who is sitting in the judge's chair is Jesus. Because he's the one who died for our sin and he's the one who rose again as Lord. He's the one that gets to pass the sentences. He's the God-man who never got it wrong. And if anyone can say guilty, it's the one who's been through it all and didn't make the mistakes and who God has raised up to be king of everything. He's the one that gets to make the, the, to make the condemnation. He's the only person who's got the right to cast the first stone. And indeed, that's actually going to be his role on Judgment Day. He will actually have that role. It will be Christ, the Bible tells us, when he returns, who will judge the living and the dead. And when he does that, it is inconceivable that a follower of Jesus could ever be condemned because he's the one, because the one who's actually doing the condemning is the very one who's pleading the case that you shouldn't be condemned. I think you're okay. There can be absolutely no doubt about the future of the Christian. It is not arrogance to say, when I die, I will go to heaven. It's not arrogance. It's it's the gospel. It's logic. And it's a wonderful, burden-lifting, empowering logic. But that is also why I must plead with you that if you haven't owned the reality of your sin and asked Jesus to take it from you, then you must know that at this point, that charge of sin remains. And God will bring it against you. And you need to know that currently, Jesus stands as your judge and not your advocate. If you were to meet God now, that is the God you will meet. And the only way that that verdict of guilty is going to change is if you ask Jesus to take your guilt from you. And he says, that's what I came to do. Don't leave it one more day because he can and he will forgive you if you ask him and you put your trust in him and you can be sure of that. And so we come to the third and perhaps most blessed assurance that Paul affirms for us, the assurance of God's enduring love for us in Christ. Verse 35 and 36, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Let me ask, why do you think 
Paul goes to love here. Well, remember this all started with his question in verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? So all of this is set in the context of understanding the impact of the gospel upon us personally as we face the sufferings and trials of this life. That's what those things are. And as we do, we can hold on with confidence as we experience these things that God is for us, that He'll bring about what He promised. We can hold on with confidence that we're truly safe from God's judgment. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But those things are reassuring for us about our futures. But what about how we feel right now? I mean, what about right in the middle of the pain? When you lose your job or you've been made bankrupt and when a relationship falls apart or when you suffer a chronic, painful or life-threatening illness, when you're enduring deep depression or anxiety and the black, black dog just won't go away, when you're destitute, you don't even have a decent set of clothes to wear. Maybe when you're a Christian in northern Nigeria and your village is destroyed and your children have been kidnapped and your wife's been raped because you're a Christian. When, right, when everything in your circumstances around you screams at you that you're despised and you're forgotten and you mean nothing. You're a victim, you're a loser, you're a failure, you're a reject. What do you need then? It's at times like these when reminding ourselves of objective truths, like God being for us and there being no need to fear His judgment, don't necessarily answer the questions that our heart is asking. Do you notice that Paul quotes... Psalm 44 um, that Trevor read to us earlier. I don't know if you noticed when, when Trevor was reading it, almost the, the jarring contrast with, between Psalm 44 and Romans 8. And you're going, Ooh, what are these two being paired up for? This is why they're being paired up. It was a confronting psalm, wasn't it? it a book of Job type psalm. Asking God, I haven't, where did, I haven't deserved all of this. What's going on and where are you? Look at verses 22 to 25 of Psalm 44. Yet for your sake, this is the one that Paul quotes, yet for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We're brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. But did you also notice how the psalm began and also how it ended? Look how it ends. Rise up and help us, rescue us, because of your unfailing love. See, what the psalmist knows is there, but feels the absence of, is God's love. Well, in verse 35, Paul rattles off this whole list of trials and dangers, some of which might even come about as a direct result of trying to be faithful to Jesus, right? And what do we say to these things then? What about this? What about that? What conclusion do we draw? Does God really love us even in the midst of all of these? He might have some divine purpose out there, but does He love me? Is the question your heart is asking. 
Well, the boldness of Paul's assurance here is astounding. The Christian knows what the psalmist trusted was there, but the Christian knows it with a confidence way more than what the psalmist had because Paul knew Jesus. The Christian knows Jesus. We get to look back and we know how much God loves us, right? What will separate us from the love of Christ? Will any of these? And Paul's answer is a resounding no. In fact, the opposite. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And notice that he says that in all these things. In them. Right there. Right then. Whatever else is going on, Paul says, God's love for you is consistent and unwavering and absolutely certain right now. In fact, in all these things, he says, we're completely victorious. That's what more than conquerors means. It's like hyper-victorious, hyper-victory. We are completely victorious through him who loved us. Am I loved even when I suffer? All I need to do is look to him who's already loved me. To the cross and my saviour who loved me so much that he suffered and died alone for me. I know I'm loved now because I can look back to the love that God has already demonstrated in the most powerful way you possibly could. A love that cannot be measured or compared. No greater proof of love has ever been shown than what we know in Christ. So if last week's reminder that the Spirit, God is with you, right? That the Spirit intercedes for us with groans, that words can't express. If that was a message of comfort for you, this reminder of just how loved we are can give us courage to face even the hardest of trials. Jesus doesn't just say, don't worry, I've got you. He says, I understand, I've been there and I'm still here. That is the rock-solid assurance that the good news of the Gospel brings. If you're in Christ, whatever else might happen to you in your life, your soul can rest in this sure knowledge, you are and always will be loved. For I am convinced, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, or neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what's so good about being a Christian? Did you pick it up over Paul's whole answer? What's so good about being a Christian? One word, God. God. You know, a well-paid worker gets enough for a house and a car. A top sports person might get adoration and fame. Or a model or a rock star might end up with an attractive partner. A high-ranking executive or politician might end up with power or influence. Impressive? Satisfying? Well, a Christian, 
any Christian, every Christian, actually gets nothing less than God. God. The living God. Who is for them and with them and loves them and not for a moment but forever. And the person that doesn't know God doesn't get God and won't know him that way. That's what Paul kept coming back to. It's all about God. And if you think anything is impressive in the world, meet God. God is who our sin estranged us from. That's the point he made in Romans 1 to 3. And God is the one who has reconciled us to himself in Christ. And that is good news. Forgiven of sin, freed from its mastery, freed from death, alive by the Spirit, able to please God, destined for glory, assured of his love. You know him and he knows you and you're bound together by love. And none of that is true for those who are outside of Jesus. And all of it is true for those who by faith are united with him. That's what makes it worth it. Completely, easily worth it. As if you would trade such a relationship with God for anything or anyone. No thanks. Stick a gun to my head. I'm not trading it in. In fact, we do the opposite. You know what we do? We meet together week after week to celebrate what we have in Christ. Because it's true, that's good. And we gather around our loving God and we hear him speak to us when his word is read and explained for us. And we meet together to call on the God who is for us and to pray to him. And we meet together to encourage those that are struggling, to strengthen those who are feeling weak as we spur one another on, as we await Christ's return. That's what we're here for. It's why you're sitting here. And yes, it involves time. It'll involve your time. And yes, it's, it's going to involve putting your money where your heart is and should. And yes, it involves giving of your sake for the sake of others. But you know what? That's assurance. That's what assurance makes you able to do. That is what being assured of God's love for us in Christ does. What it does is it it loosens our grip on lesser things that are only going to pass away anyway. It should transform our perspective on present relationships and always look at them through the realm through the lens of the gospel. And And it should focus our hearts on wills on the things of God and ensuring that we're seeking first his kingdom. But I tell you what it surely must also do, and that is move to tell others how they can know this God too. I mean, doesn't it? We've got to tell others about Jesus. Why would we ever, ever be embarrassed to share a message like that? About a God who loves them like that? Which is the point that Paul made at the very beginning of his whole argument in Romans 1 to 8. This great exposition of the gospel. And I'm going to finish by reading it to you. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith.